few less people today. I know some of the first queues went back yesterday, uh, but for the remnant, it's good to have you guys here with us this morning. Um, I'm hoping my voice will last. I, I slept in a little bit because I had a headache when I went to sleep, and I think my voice is starting to go, so we'll see how we go. Um, so today's passage comes from Mark chapter 14, uh, verses 1 to 11. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. I'll give you guys a second to look that up in your devices or your physical Bibles. The Word of God reads, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with the alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for everything that you've done throughout this season started retreat. We thank you for the moving of your spirit in the hearts of those who attended worship, those who prayed and petitioned you, for you are a faithful God that hears those who call upon you in the name of Christ. Lord, we pray that the blessings wouldn't end with this retreat, but that it would only mark the beginning of a new chapter in their life as we all walk together in community alongside the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we continue our series in Mark's Gospel, uh, I pray that you would sustain my voice, give me clarity of wisdom to be able to speak clearly, and may we be able to hear your voice through the preaching of your word. May you watch over the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, in today's passage, uh, it's two days before what's called the Passover festival and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if you haven't read much of the Old Testament before, if you haven't grown up in the church, um, these festivals uh, were established to commemorate and celebrate uh, a great moment in Israel's history, uh, namely the Exodus, so Genesis, Exodus. Read through Exodus if you get a chance. And if you read through the book of Exodus, you'll find that 
at that point in time uh, in Israel's history, they were living in Egypt, but they were living as slaves under the oppression of the Egyptian empire. And God, in his mercy, um, he liberates Israel. He, he raises Moses and he sends him to help liberate Israel. And God does this by sending a number of plagues uh, to force Pharaoh's hand to let his people go. I don't know if anyone knows an actor by the name of Charlton Heston. He did like the, he was like the original Moses on TV. And he did this, let my people, oh, yeah. Anyways. and he goes, let my people go. And a series of plagues comes and goes. And the final plague was that God would move throughout the land of Egypt and kill all the firstborn sons in every home. And instructions were given to Israel because obviously God didn't want Israel's children to die. But instructions were given that they need to sacrifice a lamb and use the blood to paint the door frames of their homes. And so when God would move across Israel, he would kill the firstborn son of every home. But if it was a home where he saw blood, the lamb's blood marking the home, he would pass over that home and that home would remain unharmed. Hence, the Passover. Yeah, they were good with words like that. Um, and so by the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed, God's people in the Exodus were spared. Now, in today's passage, thousands of years later, it's during this festival that the Jewish authorities begin plotting and scheming the downfall and murder of Jesus, who ironically would be the sacrificial lamb that would save God's people. He was the lamb that would take away the sins of the world. But the problem was that this festival that celebrated salvation that came at God's hand made the Jewish authorities afraid. Because you've got to remember, all of Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, Galilee, Galilee um, so many people in these regions, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the anointed one sent by God. And so they were afraid of what the people would do if they found out they were plotting the death of Jesus. And so they wanted to devise a plan that could result in Jesus' downfall without inciting a riot. Now, in this particular region that they were in, usually there were about population maybe 150,000. Uh, during Passover, so many people would come on a pilgrimage and the population would double if not triple. So there's about like 300 400,000 people, a lot of which believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Jesus, during this time, he's slightly outside of Jerusalem in a town called Bethany. And he's at the home of a man that they call Simon the leper. What a terrible thing to call someone. It's like Jay the eczema. Like it's, it's Simon the leper. Um, if you don't know, I, I, I get really severe eczema sometimes. But... But we don't know much about this man other than presumably that this man once had leprosy and Jesus healed him and they still called him a leper. Um, it's recorded in Holy Scripture. And Jesus was enjoying a meal at the home of Simon. We should call him the once leper, not the leper. Um, and he was enjoying the meal and we know this because it says he was reclining at the table. And Jews back then had a, a peculiar way of eating. It's not like us where we have a dining table and chairs, they had a very low table and you'd lie down with your feet sticking out 
Um, I don't know if that's healthy to do, but that's just the way they ate. So whenever you see in scripture that they were reclining at a table, uh, more, most likely they, they were enjoying a meal together. Um, and it's at this point, as Jesus is eating, that it says in today's passage that a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment or pure nard, very costly, and it says she broke the flask and poured it over his head. That sounds so strange. Uh, my wife, like uh, Pastor Alvin gave me a gift. Like I'm not, I'm not big on perfume, but he is. But Giorgio Mane, uh, I don't even remember the name. I don't know if it's Aquadigio, one of those things. Uh, my wife hates it when I spray it because um, she says it gives her a headache. Even if I like spray it like from a distance, and, like run into it, like she, she gets. But this woman comes in with this giant flask, breaks the top off, and starts pouring it on Jesus' head. Now, if I were enjoying a meal or a cup of coffee, and someone, one of you guys came in, broke a giant flask of really, really fragrant perfume and poured it on my head, I think I would be very, very annoyed. It's a bizarre thing to do, isn't it? But culturally, it must have been something that moved the heart of Jesus. Because everyone starts criticizing her, but Jesus comes to her defense. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that when she did this, everyone around, who's Simon the leper and the 12 apostles, they were indignant. I mean, they, were, they were furious. Why were they furious? Well, verse 4 and 5 says, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more then 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Like, how dare you? Now, people around her were annoyed, and we see the reason why was because of the value of this perfume. They said it costs more than 300 denarii. Not just 300, it could have been sold for more than that. And to, to equate that by today's standards, 300 denarii was the average annual salary of a laborer. Uh, if we uh, looked up on Google, the average salary, oh, sorry, average annual, not slavery, uh, salary of a laborer by today's standards, it's about sixty to seventy thousand dollars. So imagine a seventy thousand dollar bottle of perfume. For this woman, this would have been her entire life savings. Every this is like the only asset that she had. She brings this, she cracks it open. And she begins anointing Jesus. And the apostles criticize her because in their eyes, this is liquid gold, $70,000. Imagine how many people you could have fed with $70,000. And they didn't just think this to themselves. It says that they scolded her. You stupid, stupid woman. What on earth are you doing? But to their surprise, Jesus doesn't join in in their scolding. They scold her, he scolds them. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, that's interesting because like I mentioned yesterday, if you read throughout Mark's gospel, you're, well, if you 
followed our series, you'll, you'll remember that men don't really seem to get too much praise from Jesus. Um, even the apostles, the hand-picked apostles, the gospel accounts don't give a very flattering narrative about them. And even when it came to the mission and identity of Jesus, one-on-one discipleship with Jesus, three years later, they still don't get it. They don't understand the mission. They don't understand his identity. They don't understand that he's, he came to die for the sins of mankind. In their minds, all they can think about is Jesus is going to establish a new massive empire and we're going to be the second, third, fourth in charge. We're going to be the new leaders of this empire. And in a patriarchal society where men had all the authority and power, the gospel writers don't blemish the truth. They present the apostles honestly as idiots. And on the flip side, we see that the role that women played in Mark's gospel preserved through the words of Scripture for all eternity, especially the woman in today's passage. Remember a few weeks ago, we saw the woman, the widow, that gave two copper coins. It's like two cents. She gave all she had in the offering. And then today we see a woman with a $70,000 asset break it open and pour it over the head of Jesus. Now this act, it is bizarre, but it wasn't a blind act. It was an act of faith, believe it or not. And we know this because Jesus recognizes and points something out. He reveals that she understands something that the apostles don't. She understands that Jesus' death is imminent. All the apostles, you know, all they were thinking about was that day of glory and honor where they have like political status and power in this new empire. But this woman is performing this act whilst looking forward to the cross. Verse 8, Jesus says, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand. For what? For burial. And even after the death of Jesus, who were the first ones at the tomb of Jesus? Wasn't Peter. Wasn't the apostles. It was women. And just as the widow a few weeks ago became the first woman, the most famous woman in Scripture, to ever put in an offering. Jesus in verse 9 says about this woman, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus says what this woman has done will be remembered for all eternity because it's going to be recorded in Scripture. Isn't that crazy? Like this happened in Bethany on the other side of the world. 2,000 years later, we are in Golston. Koreans, Chinese, Aussies, we're, we're congregated here. We're not even like remotely related to them. 2,000 years later, this promise from Jesus is fulfilled because we're still talking about her today. Now, if you notice this passage, it has bookends. It begins with religious leaders plotting against Jesus, and it concludes with Judas Iscariot, one of the hand-picked apostles, reaching out to these same people to conspire, to help them bring about the downfall of Jesus. Verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the priests, or chief priests, in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. 
Now, Matthew's gospel in chapter 25 has the same event, but through the eyes of Matthew. It says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, there's details in this that we need to take note of. One of them is that they didn't come to him. He went to them. What will you give me if I betray Jesus to you? The second thing is the payment that he was willing to accept. Because they probably bargained, do you want this much? Do you want this much? The price they landed on was 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces. Now, the woman earlier anointed Jesus with a perfume that had a value of over 300 denarii. <clears throat> Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And if you do the currency calculation, uh, 30 pieces of silver equates to only a fraction of 300 denarii. It's about 120 denarii, 100 to 120, not even half. And that's how today's passage ends. Judas betrays Jesus for a fraction of what this woman was willing to sacrifice for Christ. Now, it's a very short narrative passage, but what we see in today's passage are three different groups of people who had different approaches to life, different approaches to Christ. And these three different groups of people can be used to classify people today in our society. You had in the opening verse, the chief priests, the scribes, and the religious leaders of the day. For them, it was all about the preservation of organized religion. They wanted to maintain and sustain this religion that they had. They wanted to plot the downfall of Jesus, but they wanted to do it in secrecy. Why? Because they were afraid of the people that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But beyond that, they were afraid of Rome. Because if you were in the Roman Empire, if you were one of the countries that Rome conquered, one of the things that Romans did well was that they didn't say, you have to become one of us. You have to become Italian. I don't know if they called themselves Italian back then, but you have to become Roman. No, they said, you can continue living the way you want. You're Korean, you can continue eating kop lami on the camp and I don't know. If you're Chinese, you can eat Chinese food, live culturally as a Chinese person. The only thing we ask of you is that in continuing living the way you were, worshipping the gods that you worship, the only thing we ask is that you pledge your allegiance to the emperor, to Caesar, and to Rome. And for the people of Israel, this was a luxury that they were able to enjoy. Like compared to all the other empires that conquered them, Rome was probably the easiest to live under uh, because they were able to enjoy the freedom of teaching and learning in synagogues, worshipping in their temples. And for the Jewish leaders who had positions of religious power, they were afraid because one of the things that Rome did not tolerate was rebellion, was a revolt. The moment there was a hint of a rebellion rising up, they would send the army and just squash it immediately. These Jewish leaders didn't want the luxury of their organized religion, their positions of status and power to be threatened. 
And so part of the reason that they wanted to kill Jesus was because they saw him as a potential threat to everything that they treasured. Because imagine, what would Rome think? You know, the, the emperor is the ruler of their land, their, 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 you know, everything that they earn. And suddenly there's a, a guy rising up in Israel who's proclaiming himself to be the king of the Jews, the king of the world, the creator of the universe. This would not sit well with Rome. And so the Jewish leaders began plotting to kill God incarnate and preserve a system for worshipping God himself. They were willing to commit murder to preserve organized religion. Isn't that ironic? It was a religion, but it was an empty religion. It was a religion with the absence of God that had nothing but customs and traditions. And I said that this categorizes people today, didn't I? And the reason I say that is because, you know, we might, we might not be plotting the death of people, um, but we, we do have a tendency to partake in empty religion sometimes. Empty customs, empty traditions. We go to church, attend service once a week, and think we've tick. I've done my religious duties for God for the week. I am good enough to go to heaven now. And I think it's a, like, we might not intentionally think that, but there's a part of us that sometimes kind of drifts into that area subconsciously. And, um, it's a danger, I think, that lurks in anything. Even in the memorization of scripture at camp. The opening verse, day one, was pretty long, wasn't it? Ephesians 4, 13 to 14. I think Timmy, little Timmy was the only one that got it word for word. Yeah. But even in reciting and memorizing scripture, I remember the first time I, re I remembered uh, memorized a passage from scripture. I don't remember it now. But uh, at a church I used to attend, they had a, a Bible recital competition and they made the entire congregation memorize Matthew chapter 6. And my mom is like, you have to bring pride to our family. You memorize, don't even eat, just memorize this verse. Bring glory to our family. And all I did was just, for the next two weeks, was just, Morning to evening, just reading, reading. And I wrapped that verse out so quickly. And all the elders were like, who is this prodigy? <laughs> but even in that, it can be an empty action, can't it? Because I had no idea what Matthew 6 was about. <laughs> I just memorized it. I was like, what, what, what's this babbling on the street corners? Like, you know, well, what's he talking about? And even with the memory verse, I remember my wife was like, oh, I better memorize that as well. But it's easy to memorize a long verse and forget that it's not about the memorization that's important, but understanding that there is an intention and a meaning behind the words we memorize. And the purpose isn't to memorize it, but to allow that purpose to shape and transform our life, to memorize it so that we can hear the voice of God, and ask him, what are you saying to me today? So on one hand, you have empty religion. Then if we skip to the end, we see men like Judas, who are outside of religion. They're not even a part of religion. They're outside of it. And the mindset is that I'm out to care for myself. I'm living for myself. I seek 
to enjoy the things of the world and accumulate the things of the world so I can enjoy security and stability for myself in this world. For 30 pieces of silver, 120 denarii, it would have been about twenty-five dollars to $30,000 that he sacrificed Christ for. Willing to accept rejecting Christ for not even half a year's salary at minimum wage. And I started thinking about it. I wanted to ask you this. <clears throat> if someone came up to you and said, hey, I will give you $30,000 cash to leave FLM. Hold you If you split it with me, I'll be okay. No, I'm <laughs> but it's easy to criticize people like Judas. But when you see $30,000, I've never seen $30,000 cash. I don't know how big it is. But I hope we need to be a resounding no. But it would be tempting. <clears throat> so that's the second category. People that, and I think for many of us, we, we tend to drift. Like we, we can look at the, oh, there, those people, this is these. But I think there is a part of us because we are of the flesh that we subconsciously tend to drift because we do get tempted. And then finally, we see the woman with the perfume. And you know, the disciples did make a good point. $70,000 could have been better spent, in my opinion. Think of how many people $70,000 could feed. Like I went to Macca's, like I convinced my wife, <laughs> we had, I had a Big Mac meal and Oreo McFlurry and chicken nuggets. <laughs> so happy. But I did the calculation. $70,000 can purchase over 5,200 large Big Mac meals. 5,200 starving people could be fed. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Jesus isn't saying, don't worry about the poor. I'm more important. They'll always be hungry. Don't worry about them. That's not what he's saying. I promise you that's not what he's saying. But at this stage in history, you have to remember that this is God incarnate. He is physically present with them at this point. And he is physically going to die in two days. This passage isn't a prescriptive teaching on how to, you know, how to feed the poor, how not to feed the poor. It's not a passage to teach us how to manage our finances. The point of this passage is to teach us that God's word, as Stephen Char mentioned, God's word should shape our devotion and our worship of Jesus. Now you might be thinking, how did you make that jump from $70,000 cash perfume to God's word? Where, where does it mention God's word? It doesn't seem to make any reference to scripture in today's passage. Well, I say that because of verse 8. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. In all of Jesus' teaching ministry, in teaching about himself, teaching about his mission. You know what's crazy? This is the one person in Mark's gospel that got it. 
It wasn't about a physical empire that Jesus was going to establish and oh, I'm going to make you the prime minister, I'm going to make you vice president and you're going to be the ambassador for international relations. It wasn't about Jesus becoming a warrior king or a military general. No, this woman understood that Jesus came to die. This was what Jesus taught. And this is the one person that accepted what Jesus taught. She accepted Jesus' words and she allowed it to shape and define the way she responded to Jesus. She allowed it to define her worship and her devotion to Jesus. Because who breaks up a $70,000? Oh, it's like, that's crazy, isn't it? $70,000. You can buy a new car with that. She wasn't a nut. She wasn't someone that didn't have any sense of the value of money. This was a woman that understood the mission of Christ. She understood that the precious Son of God was going to the cross to do what He came to do, to die. And in her love and in her devotion, she anoints the head of Jesus because He's going to die soon. And her actions are ultimately recorded in Holy Scripture to be celebrated by God's people for all eternity. And like I said, this isn't a prescriptive passage commanding us to give every dollar we have. Like if you've got like money in your account, he's not telling us if you got $70,000 in your account, too bad, that's going to Jesus. He's not telling you to withdraw everything and give it to the church. It's not telling us that we don't have to feed the poor because the church is more important. But what we see in this woman is a woman who allowed the words of God, the teachings of God, to shape and define her devotion and her worship of Christ. And this is why it's so important to remember what Pastor Stephen Char preached on the first night, the importance of God's word. He mentioned that this is a non-negotiable. And when it comes to worship, there is an element where we can be creative with how we worship God. I think God grants us creativity to have a certain amount of creativity with the way we worship and to remove certain limitations in how we worship. Like we don't have to kneel or face a particular direction or look, you know, wait till the moon is like a particular, you know, whether it's a crescent moon to pray. There's not limitations like that. But I, at the same time, we are to worship God within the boundaries and parameters that He gives us. We're to worship Him the way He commands us to worship Him. And even in worshiping God, the understanding that we have of God when we worship Him is to be defined by what God says about himself in Holy Scripture. That's why I went through some of the character attributes of God in the seminar. He is who he says he is, not what we think he is. He moves the way he says he moves, not the way we'd like him to move. And he desires worship the way he commands to be worshipped, not by how culture or the world thinks he should be worshipped. And so this is my challenge to you. Pastor Stephen asked on the first day, what do you believe? And I think that's such a simple but powerful question that we don't ask enough. 
My question to you is what does the Bible say about how we are to worship him and what that should look like? And I'd encourage you to read through Mark's gospel. Uh, we're, we're like two chapters away from finishing. Have a read through and see how God incarnate in the perfect man of Christ commands himself to be worshipped. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that we're able to continue Mark's series uh, on this Sabbath day at camp. Lord, we thank you for every word that's been shared from the pulpit at this retreat. And Lord, we pray that it would shape us, that we would hear your voice with clarity and that we would understand that you are who you say you are. You move the way you say you move and you are to be worshipped the way you command to be worshipped. And so Lord, when we look to the three groups of people in today's passage, uh, let's not be in the hypocrisy of thinking that we belong and can be classified under the same category as the woman. But in humility, recognize that we, we tend to drift. Sometimes we, we just go through the processes of empty religion. Sometimes we're, we're just out for ourselves. But Lord, anytime we do drift, we pray for a Holy Spirit conviction to bring us back to the feet of Christ. And in coming back to Him, to not be weighed down by shame or guilt, but to flee to him for mercy in anticipation, knowing that he will receive us because of what he has accomplished in the cross, because grace and mercy is lavished upon us in abundance. We thank you for the person and work of Christ, O Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.